women are so much more in the story than we mm-hmm. tend to think of. And so yeah. you see Mary sitting at the feet, which is a formal rabbinic title of discipleship right. in the first century world. Paul says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, um, Hillel's mm-hmm. grandson. And so when Mary is sitting at the feet and the Bible says that Martha was distressed and worried about many things, we have reduced that story to think that Martha is only upset that Mary's not helping with the casserole. Mary is Mm -hmm. breaking cultural norms in agreement with Jesus breaking cultural norms by Mm -hmm. having females sitting at his feet. And the text doesn't explicitly state it, but I don't know why in the world we would think Mary was the only one. Right after I got done interviewing today's guest, I walked out of my office and there was my wife and daughter. And my wife is a big fan of our guest today. And when I told her that it had gone really well with her, our guest, my daughter Savannah got so excited and said, it's a she. Normally, I hear that you're interviewing he's. And that tells you everything you need to know ahead of our episode today with Christy McClellan as we talk about her expertise in Jewish backgrounds, first century Israel, but especially how women fit in to the ministry of Jesus and why it might matter to my seven-year-old little girl. If you haven't already and you're an Apple user, make sure to review the show on Apple Podcasts. Whether you're an Apple user or not, share the show on social media so that as many Christian thinkers are raised up in these next generations as possible. I want to make sure that this intro is super short though, because the interview you're about to hear with Christy McClellan is going to broaden your mind and teach you, but also help you understand that Jesus truly is for everyone, even people who are left out of society. And so I hope that you're challenged. I know you'll be encouraged by this week's Christian thinker, Christy McClellan. My next guest is a speaker, teacher, and professor at Williamson College and an author with Lifeway, having recently published the Bible study, Jesus and Women, and I should say, has plenty of other Bible studies available for you to go check out her website, which is listed in the show notes, and the plethora of resources that she has for you that she's written, quite prolific. Uh, She has dedicated her life to teaching people how to study the Bible for themselves, teaching, preaching, discipleship, and writing about how God is better than we ever knew by teaching the Bible through a Middle Eastern lens. In fact, she can often be found leading trips to Israel to teach people about the Bible while walking in the footsteps of Jesus themselves. She once said, you haven't learned a thing when you've seen it. You haven't learned a thing when you've heard it. You haven't learned a thing when you've seen and heard it. You've learned a thing when you can give it away. And so it's obvious to me that she has learned the scriptures and the person of Jesus so well, since she can so often be found giving it away to people. I'm honored to say that my guest today is Christy McClellan. Christy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Well, um, so in our, in our virtual green room as such, uh, w- we talked about uh, just the influence that you've had through Lifeway and um, my, my wife and people that I know having heard you coming back from the Nashville Lifeway Women's Forum and just saying, because uh, they know that I love biblical scholarship and saying, you have to hear this Christy McClellan. And so um, 
uh, reading Jesus as women and seeing, you know, what this study is doing for women um, has been amazing. But I have to, I have to ask this, and this is, if we, if we just did this and then we published the podcast, I think it would be enough. But since you were so often in Israel teaching scripture, which is fascinating to me, um, how, how do you feel when you realize you're teaching Jesus's words sometimes in the exact spot where he may have said those words himself? What does that make you feel? Oh, it, it levels me every single time in the best possible way. You know, I tell people often, we had an early church father. His name was Jerome. We now call him St. Jerome. Mm -hmm. And he himself was not Jewish, but he immigrated to the land and gave 30 years of his life in Bethlehem, translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. Mm -hmm. And he produced a translation called the Latin Vulgate that the church used for a thousand years. Can you imagine doing something that would bless the church for a thousand years? Right. Um, Man, Jerome was so so incredible, but he was walking through the land, that incarnational space where the living God took on flesh and came down to walk among us. And he started writing his other contemporary church fathers. And in one of his letters, he talked about that the land is the fifth gospel. Hmm. There are four gospels that we read and one that we behold. There's four gospels that we read and one that we walk. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like as a person who's had the opportunity to study in Israel, to study in Egypt, and now to have been taking teams there for 13 years in my soul, if you were to ask me, I'm a person who experiences five gospels. Mm -hmm. I read four and I walk one. Mm -hmm. And when you're in Israel, it's everything. It's eating foods that Jesus would have eaten. It's looking up and seeing constellations in the sky that he Mm -hmm. knew in his incarnational life. It's sitting on rocks where he was there. It's being on a boat on the Sea of Galilee with the team. And I tell my students all the time, the Bible is not only the best story that's ever been told, it's also the truest. Mm -hmm. Um, These things happened. And there's just nothing like shifting from being a reading saint to a beholding saint. You can never unsee what you're going to see when you go there. Wow. Well, so I was right. So we could pretty much just stop there. (laughs) Um, No, that's, that's tremendous because, um, so I've not, I've not been able to go, um, as of, you know, yet, uh, of course, continually plan and it just never works. My wife has been, and I have so many friends in ministry who have been, and they say, that I've heard people say it's like going from reading in black and white to in color. It's like, you know, going from reading it on the page to it being a pop-up book. Um, and so it, it obviously is such a life-changing experience. And then, and then of course, too, just sometimes, to, like you said, eating foods that, that the Lord ate himself or seeing things that he, he obviously, that has to just make an imprint on you that I can't even imagine. Absolutely. I mean, it, it has changed me. It is changing me and it's going to continue to change. Yeah. Me, wow. you know? Well, and it's brought you to where you are today in large part. Um, so you in traveling in what we would call the Middle East, um, you know, in places like Egypt and places like Israel, like you were led, it seems to ultimately a feverish love through studying, not just the scriptures, but cultures. And you describe yourself uh, with a term that I, I absolutely love, uh, a biblical culturist. So before we talk too much about Jesus and women or anything else, can you just tell me and the people listening, what do you mean when you say you're a biblical culturist? Yeah, that's a great question. So what a culturalist does in biblical analysis, interpretation, and study is we teach the Bible through its original historical 
cultural, linguistic, and geographic context. Mm -hmm. In other words, we function like a time machine. We're going to take you back 2,000 years to the first century Jewish world of Jesus. We're going to take you back 3,000 years to the era of the monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon. We're going to take you even back further to the era of the patriarchs, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you just a little bit of a better sense of what the biblical authors meant by what they wrote and what the biblical characters were doing in time and space in these stories that we read that make up the Bible. Yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing to see. So I've seen this now in, in reading all of your materials. Um, I've had Dr. Michael Heiser on the show and who his point of view is by trying to get to the first century understanding and before things like the Bible project are exploding in popularity with, with Tim Mackey doing the exact same thing. Why, why in your opinion, and it's such a good thing. So it's not an antagonistic question, but why do you think more and more teachers and academics are trying to bring the church's understanding of the Bible now back to the first century? Whereas for hundreds of years, it seemed like every pastor was getting up and saying, this is what the Bible means for you. Why do you think we're seeing that shift now in such a wide scale? Oh, it's such an exciting time yeah. just to be alive in the church. You know, my response to that, when I hear you ask it, I would say this is as an American people, as a Western culture, we are infinitely more Athens and Rome than we are Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. We are Greeks and we are Romans. We are not so much the Jews and the Greeks loved knowledge and the Romans loved power, but the Hebrews always loved the light, the light of the mystery, the revelation, the story of the Bible. So, you know, when I went to seminary, I was taking systematic theology classes. Yeah. Um, rabbis do not teach that way in rabbinic Judaism. Jesus would not have taught that way when he was teaching his disciples 2000 years ago. So it's not a right or a wrong. Um, biblical analysis isn't binary like that. It's not either this or that. But what happened for me when the Lord opened up the door for me to go study in Egypt and Israel, I already had three years of seminary under my belt. I had my Athens and Rome biblical education. Mm -hmm. Being able to study in Egypt and Israel gave me my cultural world understanding of the Bible mm -hmm. and specifically of Jesus and his first century Jewish world. You know, the best way I know how to explain it and I think this is the answer to the question of why the Western church is waking up to culturalism when it comes to the Bible is when you think about when you started dating Courtney and the time came for you to go home with her to meet her family. Yeah. And you had been dating her, you were getting to know her, but there was something about you getting to go to her place of origin, meet her people. You know, you're sort of like looking at her mom going, oh my gosh, Courtney, you make that same face that your mom makes, <laughs> yeah. you know, and just wow. getting to know her in her world and in her space, um, getting to know Jesus in his incarnational Jewish, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean world space. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's growing our intimacy with him. Um, you know, we see him very much as transcendent. You know, you ask people, where is God? He's up there. He's out there. But studying in Israel made him imminent to me as well. Yes, wow. he's up there and out there, but he's also right here and very near. And the story yeah. of the Bible is the living God meeting us exactly where we are and refusing to leave us there. And so I think that we're actually becoming much more soulish as a Western people, as we interact with the Bible, um, as we're getting to know these biblical characters and their stories and their meanings anchored in their context. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Well, gosh, that's tremendous. And that, that's such a great way to say it of the idea of like going home to yes. meet the family and all that. What, I, what I've found as a pastor, and this is why I love studies like Jesus and women um, in studies like that. That's why I think the Bible project is becoming so popular and in, in, in things like that is it kind of reminds me of the idea of like, if you give a man a fish versus if you teach a man to fish, because I know I was in, I was in student ministry for seven years and I know you're in, heavily involved in church ministry. And so we both regularly have people come up to us and say, I want to learn what you know. And so much of what I learned in school can really only be learned if someone goes to school. Um, but if you kind of like what I see from the way you teach is that if we can teach people what that culture was like, and if what, what was actually happening in the first century, and of course, before in regards to the intertestamental period and in the background of the Old Testament, is people can begin to read scripture and not need me and you to explain every Greek word and every Hebrew word. Instead, they can begin to understand things alike. Do you, do you really love it when you see the light bulb go off in someone's head and they begin to depend on you less and less as their, as their teacher or, or even rabbi, so to speak? Do you love seeing that light bulb as much as I think you do? Oh my goodness. You know, I had a mentor for 25 years. Um, we lost her to ovarian cancer two years ago, but she used to always say, Christy, great Bible teachers make people want to study the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I've never forgotten that. Yeah. Um, in the end, if there's yeah. something about the way we are interacting with and communicating the scriptures with and among others, mm-hmm. if it fuels their fire to eat the feast for themselves, I think yeah. we've done our job. So absolutely. Yeah. And all the more so when I'm with teams in Israel, one of my absolute most favorite moments is when I get to walk a team up to the Sea of Galilee for the very first time. And for those who've never been to just watch their reactions to it, you know, some cry, some just stare, some start laughing, um, some just fall down on their knees. There is just something about connecting people to it all um, that really has become my life's work. I don't have kids, but I liken it to when you take your kids to the zoo for the first Mm -hmm. time, you've been to the zoo, you've seen the animals, you're excited to watch them see the animals, Yeah, you know? And so it's that kind of a thing. Oh yeah. Well, and that's, so not only is that amazing in regards to you taking teams to Israel and and ministering there in in Nashville where where you live, um, but specifically you, you do have such a sweet spot in ministry teaching women and here lately teaching women about what the Bible has to say about women. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your teaching and, and reading it. And, and what I want to ask you to do to begin, before we really begin even talking about, okay, literally Jesus and women, you have this amazing way of explaining the, the timeline of women's place changing from the time of Genesis to the time of Jesus and including things like what happened in the intertestamental period. Can you kind of briefly explain just how starting from the garden, women had a much different role to where we find them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and kind of um, for those listening who just aren't that familiar, what, what happened in that long time range there that, that ended up with uh, women having the place societally as they did in the time of Jesus? You know, this is an important question because when I hear people in popular culture say that the Bible is antiquated and it promotes patriarchy and all of this kind of stuff, I think it's so good for us to unpack these things. And so I'll just briefly begin in the first century gospel era of Jesus, and then we'll go back to Jesus, back to Genesis and walk our way into it. 
But, you know, Jesus is birthed into a world in an honor shame culture where women were located in shame. Mm-hmm. And it is very important to understand that it was not that way from the beginning. It was not that way from the Genesis. You know, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it's so interesting in Judaism, woman is the pinnacle of creation. She is the best of all that God made. It's the reason Jewish wives circle their husbands at their wedding, because she is his guard. Um, she, she's there to watch over. You know, I asked a rabbi in Israel once, you know, rabbi, what does the Bible mean when it says it wasn't good for Adam to be alone? And he looked right at me and he said, because there was an enemy in the garden and it was always going to take men and women together to contend against the enemy. Wow. And I'd never heard a response like that. And so just this beautiful beginning of the story where male-female relationships were anchored in mutuality, not hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, They were horizontal, side-by-side and face-to-face long before they were vertical, Um, somebody needing to be over somebody else. So obviously in Genesis 3, when sin enters the story, the abundance of Eden is lost to scarcity. And now there's this striving and this straining and might makes right. And so you don't really see the, the creation or the rise of patriarchy until Genesis 3, because now, according to God, women will seek to rule over men and men will seek to rule over women. Mm-hmm. And men are physically stronger and might makes right sure. in the world. Mm-hmm. And so now we're off and running. But, you know, as we make our way through the Bible, when you notice the women that are talked about, they are not at all peripheral to the story of Israel. They mm-hmm. are central. Yeah. Miriam is leading Israel with Moses and Aaron. Um, Barak will not go into war against Sisera without Deborah because Mm -hmm. he wants the prophetess with him. Um, When Josiah loses the book of the law, bless his kingly Melech heart, um, he has all of these prophets to consult, Mm -hmm. and yet he consults Huldah, the prophetess. Um, He goes to a woman to seek out the counsel of the Lord. We come to the New Testament, and we're seeing that even at Shabbat, you know, something that's so lovely, I love talking about this, you know, for the Jewish people, Sabbath is Friday, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And there's only one member of the family who's allowed to light the Shabbat candles. In the rabbinics, you welcome the Sabbath like a bride into your home. Mm-hmm. And the only member of the family that's allowed to light them is the mother. Um, She is the one who has the honor of lighting the Shabbat candles. And so again, honor, honor, honor. We're coming from a a history of the matriarchs. We're coming from a history of Miriam and Deborah and Huldah and Esther. And when you think about all the things in the Bible, that's a girl that's feminine. Torah is feminine. Mm -hmm. The church is feminine. Ruach, spirit, feminine. I mean, good things in the Bible are in the feminine. Yeah. Um, you know, and you've got great stories like Ruth and you just go on and on. So, you know, that little white page in our Bible is between Malachi and Matthew. I like to say that's a very deceiving page because it makes you feel like nothing happened Mm -hmm. in the earth between Malachi and Matthew. But that 400 years known as the intertestamental period, we really start to see the honor of woman start to slide. And there's a lot of reasons for it. I couldn't unpack them all in the Jesus right. and Women series. So I, I identified one man, Ben Sarah, and mm-hmm. quoted some of his writings. And I chose him because 
he wasn't just influential over one synagogue. He's sort of like a modern day Timothy Keller or somebody like that, that mm-hmm. that's known, you know, throughout sort of like the system of Judaism. Right. Not that, that Timothy not. Keller is a chauvinist or anything, but you know, <laughs> yeah, right, there you go. <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. You know, just as far as platforms. Yeah, scale, exactly. Um, you know, when you just start to look at his writings and what he was saying about mm-hmm. women, you know, you start to see them move from some of those central partnerships with men that we've always seen throughout scripture to the point where that theology, it grows like a snowball for 200 mm-hmm. years. And then Jesus comes onto the scene. Yeah. And so part of what I talk about in the Jesus and Women series is Jesus was born into a Ben Sorakian world. Mm -hmm. Um, That theology is now 200 years strong. And so is Jesus going to agree or Mm -hmm. is he going to disagree? Is he going to live in harmony and is he going to uphold those teachings or is he going to seek to kingdom subversively dismantle them and Mm -hmm. to start working the restoration and the renewal of the way things were meant to be at the very beginning, which was mutuality and not hierarchy. Yeah, Uh, That's what I mean by, you know, Jesus didn't come to turn things upside down. He came to turn things right side up. Yeah, right. And, you know, so for those listening, if you ever get the chance, just even, uh, I think you can find some of the, like the previews on YouTube, when you are uh, teaching on this and you bring up um, Ben Sarah, it's almost as if you're bringing up a villain when you're in these rooms with the late, with the women teaching, because the, the feel in the room, when you bring up uh, Ben Sarah and you say, do you remember us talking about him? And, and it's all like nobody boos, but you can tell that they want to um, because uh, the, yeah, this is the turning point. It seems as if for women um, during the intertestinal period where things began to change in, in your experience, explaining what you just did, and explaining to women of a, of a 20th or 21st century that our popular understanding of the Bible, that it's antiquated, that it's chauvinist, that it is all wrapped up in patriarchy is not 100% true. Even before you get to Jesus, do you feel as if sometimes even, even just finding out everything that you just said is sometimes freeing for women that they don't have to look at the Old Testament as, um, as a source of, of sexism? Absolutely. I mean, Genesis one and two sets women free. You know, that phrase, a helper suitable in Hebrew is Ezra Mm -hmm. Kando. (laughs) And it is infinitely more than, better than, and other than the way that we have typically taught you know, that phrase here. And so I do a whole teaching on that as a connecto. And so literally from the Genesis, and then when you start to walk women through the Miriams and the Deborahs and Mm -hmm. the Huldas and the Esthers and the Yaels and, you know, all of that, they're like, oh my goodness, you know, Mm -hmm. either women who aren't in church. So, oh my goodness, the Bible really is saying all of this about women They're in such honor. They're leading Israel and, you know, Kings are consulting them and they're, Mm -hmm putting tent pegs in bad dudes' heads and right, yeah. them out. And it's like, wow. And then church women are going, why have I studied the Bible my whole life? And emphasis has not been given to these women yeah. and an understanding of what they were really doing. So you're absolutely right. I mean, when I hear people say that God in the Old Testament was kind of a curmudgeon and then mm-hmm. Jesus comes along in the new and he's kind, I'm like, man, you don't understand sure. the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, You don't understand what the living God was doing, you know, Mm -hmm. in in that era. So absolutely, you know, and so you just got to love Jesus who with the heart of his father shows up in the first century Jewish world. And he's like, well, this right here is not right. Yeah. 
And I'm going to live in such a way to bring restoration to it. I can remember being a, a, a young Bible student. And I think, and I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm accurate in remembering this is when I've learned that when the Septuagint was being translated, that when they went back to Genesis and translated into Greek, the, what you just talk about the Hebrew, the idea of, I will make him a helper suitable fit for him. Didn't they use paraclete? I think that the, the translators yeah, even. Absolutely. Yes. So, so, so for those listening, that's the word in the new Testament that we use for the Holy spirit. Yes, it is. So, so the, you know, those translating in Qumran and the Essenes and um, these, uh, these Jews, you know, even before the times of Jesus were translating these words and they place such a high value on Eve so much so that they used the same word that Jesus would later use for, for the Holy spirit. And so I think right there, we begin to see a tone set that means that in the 20th and 21st century, we've, we've messed. And of course, before then we, in the church, we've messed up the place of women Uh, in an attempt maybe to get it right. We've, we've horribly diminished it way, way too much. So, um, but so I love listening though, and reading uh, you talk about the first century. And I know that's probably where you feel maybe most comfortable in talking about the time of Jesus. And uh, just because of course we are limited on time. If you're listening and and, and your attention is already uh, caught, make sure uh, to go uh, to Lifeway and check out Jesus and women and all these other resources and Christie's website. But I remember reading Jesus and women and reading uh, you talk about the talit, which is the, the shawl that in, in even still today, if you go to a synagogue, a Jewish rabbi is going to be wearing a shawl and, and Jews across the world are, are still wearing these. But of course, everybody in the first century would have, would have had one. And you write about how the Lord instructed them to, to weave a violet or blue or purple thread through the talit. And Uh, for those listening, purple and blue have long represented royalty in the ancient world. And so that's why at Easter um, on, 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 on Friday, oftentimes purple is draped over the cross for good Friday. Um, And, and so this thread is hugely representative, you say of the chosen nature of Israel. And you wrote in Jesus and women, it was as if God were saying, I know what Egypt said to said you were and how you were mistreated there. But I say, you are a Royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart by my love live in the identity I have given to you, forgetting any other label the world has tried to place on you. And it's such a beautiful sentiment when thinking about how Jews were supposed to think of themselves. But Christy, do you think women in the first century felt as if they were really part of that chosen status? Um, and, and just how radical does that make Jesus as a rabbi teacher in the first century? Oh, yeah, they would have wondered if they had a place at the table. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if that blue cord, you know, what I love about that story, you know, when God gives that in Torah to a people in the desert, that color blue, um, mm-hmm. it actually comes from a snail. Um, that they would extract it and use it. But the only person or the only family that they would have seen in their time in Egypt who wore that was the Pharaonic house. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God's meeting his people in the desert, in the wilderness. You know, you want to talk about getting a lovely word in a difficult place Mm -hmm. and saying, no, each one of you is to have this. And so I think part of the invitation for us specifically to women in that first century world, it's, I think we're okay with thinking about that we are made in the Imago day, mm-hmm. but it's really honoring that in another. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Jesus came on the scene and really showed what it was like to live in such a way that he saw and honored the Imago day, not only in men 
and boys, but in women and girls. Mm -hmm. And it's really that feeling of mutuality that he's Mm -hmm. trying to bring back. Um, That for me, you can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not feel that as part of his personality, part of what he's trying to do. Yeah. And, and for somebody who's not familiar um, yet with your teaching, or even as we said, reading scripture through that the ancient Near East lens or the Middle East lens, first century lens. Well, one of the most interesting facets of Jesus's teaching that modern Western readers certainly will not pick up until Christy McClelland or somebody else tells them is um, the place that Jesus holds for women, even in his teaching and specifically in his parables. So can you elaborate for listeners on why parables like the woman uh, who's lost the silver coin or the persistent widow Um, and so many others where women are the central figures in the parabolic teaching of Christ. Why is that so radical? And and, because I don't think most Western readers would pick up on that. Well, thank you for asking the question. I love talking about this. So when you look at rabbinic literature of the first century, rabbis, Pharisees, teachers of the law, they rarely, if ever, most likely they do not use women or the feminine And as the subject matter of their parables and stories, because women were considered too lowly to communicate the divine Mm -hmm. and parables were so important because they are the main teaching methodology of the rabbis and the Pharisees of Jesus's world. There's a reason he tells so many stories. Yes, he's a great storyteller, but he is conveying theology through story through narrative. And so if you're a woman, if you're a teen girl, if you're a little girl living 2000 years ago in that world, you love Torah, your family goes to synagogue, Mm -hmm. but all of the teachings are in the masculine. So your dad can find his place in the story. Your brother can find a place in the story. Your uncle can, but you don't ever quite hear a story that pulls you into it that lets you know that your rabbi sees you, that he's including you, that you are welcomed, embraced, accepted in the kingdom adventure. And so Jesus comes on the scene and as he's shaping and creating his parables as a rabbi of Israel, his main teaching methodology, he not only uses women and the feminine sometimes in his teachings, he is adamant Mm -hmm. about it. In the gospel of Luke alone, And I talk about this in Jesus and women, there are 27 pairings and Christy, what's a pairing? It's a moment where Jesus shares a parable in the masculine, and then he shares one in the feminine. And sometimes he goes feminine first. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the pairing, he shares the feminine parable first and the masculine parable second. And so this is earth shattering stuff in the first century world, because all of a sudden as a woman, as a teen girl, as a little girl, this itinerant rabbi comes to your town. He's teaching in your synagogue or on your hillside and he's teaching, he's teaching. And all of a sudden he looks at you with this twinkle in his eye and he starts telling a story that's in your world Mm. about something that your hands do every day, that your feet do every day. And all of a sudden you feel seen, you feel located in the story. You know that he wants you there. He is affirming your presence there. And it is a game changer. When you look at Mm -hmm. Luke 15, you briefly mentioned it, this trilogy of stories that Jesus shares 
you know, here we call it the parable of the lost sheep, but there they call it the parable of the good shepherd. Mm -hmm. Here we call the second story, the parable of the lost coin, but in the Middle East, they call it the parable of the good woman, not just a woman, a good woman. Yeah. And then you go on to the, the parable of the running father, what we would call the prodigal son. And so Jesus, even in the way he constructed his rabbinic stories and parables and teachings, he is adamant that the feminine be included. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the stories that I treat in Jesus and women is the parable of the persistent widow. Mm-hmm. And man, you know, you're not expecting a rabbi of Israel to use the lowliest of the lowest, lowest yeah. woman possible in that world, which is a widow to teach about perseverance and prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, man, there's so many greats he could have pulled from, right? But no, he shaped and crafted that story with a widow being the central figure who is so tenacious, she upends a ruthless judge yeah. who has all the power, all the authority. So honestly, you and I would have been sitting there 2000 years ago with our jaws on the ground, looking mm-hmm. at each other going, what is happening right yeah. now? We have yeah. never heard stories like this. Mm. Well, it, and it's for, for somebody listening who maybe hasn't, hasn't quite caught it. And I, and I don't know how they, 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 they would be able to not listening to you talk about it, but I just know coming from um, a masculine perspective, obviously so many things even still today are primarily geared towards um, men. And it's as if, cause the parable of the, the good woman, as you said, or the lost coin, as we might say, is really the equivalent in modern day times of if my wife lost her engagement ring. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, but I'm on my second wedding ring, you know, like I've lost a, I've lost <laughs> a wedding ring. We went to Walmart or wherever and we bought another one. And it's as if, so if you're listening and you're still not tracking, it's as if Jesus in a world where the parables would have only been about agriculture. They would have only been about things geared towards men. Somebody said, well, you know, it's like if you lose your engagement ring and I can't, I, I could never understand what it's like to lose an engagement ring because I don't wear one. And so for Jesus to start telling these stories, like you said, are it's earth shattering because there's 50% of the population who can't relate. And now all of a sudden this vigilante rabbi shows up and he starts telling stories for everyone. And um, yeah, I mean, like, I think earth shattering, like what you said is the best way, the best way to describe it. Oh, for sure. I mean, I mean, you really understand in moments like this, why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Yes. That's Um, exactly what I was about to say. We find another reason why they hated Jesus. He was subversive to everything that they were about. Yeah. So then, so that was actually what I was about to ask you. What then? Because we can kind of understand in you better than most because you've spent so much time studying it, but we can sort of understand what a woman would have felt like listening to these stories, man, I'm involved. I'm part of this story. I'm part of God's plan as best as you can paint a picture for us then of what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite would have felt hearing a rabbi tell these stories. Oh, fury, absolute fury. Because what Jesus is doing is he's locating the kingdom with and among the people. It's very much God is here. The living God of Abraham, Mm -hmm. Isaac, 
in Jacob, he is here. And for the religious leaders, you know, it's all about being clean, staying clean, piety. There's this separation from the Amharets, the common people of the land. Jesus is going around eating with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, he's colluding, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's collusion with the unclean. And you just don't do that as a rabbi. So his table fellowship practices would have infuriated them and did infuriate them. Um, Certainly his attitudes toward posture with and ministry to women would have infuriated them um, because he's bringing God close. Mm -hmm. He's bringing that intimacy in, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, God is here. He is with and among you, just as he was with the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, back in our histories, as the Jewish people, he's not just transcendent, he's eminent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so accepting, you know, so the picture yes. of Jesus at Bethany, um, you know, before he raises Lazarus, there's just a, a quick line of, and Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet. And I mean, I think you'd agree that we missed the value of that statement, but that would have been shocking to other rabbis in the first century that Jesus had women followers in general, women, uh, people who were following it in that he was letting, not only that he was telling stories about them, that, that even he was instructing them as their rabbi. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I love asking great questions because that's the rabbinic way. And mm-hmm. so when the Bible says that Jesus sends out the 70, why do we always assume they were all men? Right. Sure. You know, the two on the road to Emmaus, only mm-hmm. one is named Cleopas. Why do we assume they're two men? Mm-hmm. You know, culturally speaking, it's much more likely that it's Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas, you know, walking yeah. on the street and mm-hmm. they invite Jesus into their home. And so it just kind of depends on the traditional lens that we've grown up with. Women are so much more in the story than we mm-hmm. tend to think of. And so yeah. you see Mary sitting at the feet, which is a formal rabbinic title of discipleship right. in the first century world. Paul says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, um, Hillel's mm-hmm. grandson. And so when Mary is sitting at the feet and the Bible says that Martha was distressed and worried about many things, we have reduced that story to think that Martha is only upset that Mary's not helping with the casserole. Mary is Mm -hmm. breaking cultural norms in agreement with Jesus breaking cultural norms by Mm -hmm. having females sitting at his feet. And the text doesn't explicitly state it, but I don't know why in the world we would think Mary was the only one. I think when we read about Joanna and Susanna and others following him around in his itinerant ministry, when the Bible says that they were seating in and helping to financially support him, why do we assume that's all they were doing? Mm-hmm. You know, they right. too were probably sitting at the feet and learning and yeah. being Talmudim disciples of mm-hmm. Jesus. And in that world, man, that's the kind of stuff that will make you worried and anxious about many things. What's your family going to say? Mm-hmm. What's your village going to say? What's your local rabbi, you know, at your synagogue? What are the Pharisees going to say? And, you know, Jesus is just truly cutting across all verticality and bringing mm-hmm. the horizontal way of Eden in the way that he lived his life in the first century world. Yeah. Well, and even from the time he entered the world, even in the womb, he was, you know, bringing women into the story in a way that they had never been involved through Mary. Um, And so it it doesn't, you know, his entire life and, and there at the cross, you know, allowing John to become, you know, vicariously 
Mary's son. And, and, and so it's just like women are constantly being included. You mentioned though, an interesting figure, um, uh, Gamaliel, which is Paul's uh, rabbi. Is it, would it be as easy for you to write a Bible study called Je- uh, Paul and women as it was Jesus and women? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. I think you, you should know. do that by the way. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll get to work on that. Yeah. You know, you know, Paul is a follower of Jesus. And so mm-hmm. would we really expect him to have a different attitude toward posture with and yeah. ministry to women than his Lord, um, his savior, his Messiah. Yeah. And where we see Jesus with Magdalene, um, you know, Joanna and Susanna, we see Paul with Priscilla and Phoebe and Junia and, yeah. Romans 16, he lists more women than men as those who are co-laboring mm-hmm. in the gospel with mm-hmm. him. And so I definitely think all the way back to Eden, that Ezra Connecto, that male-female together contending against the enemy and stewarding the abundance of, of Eden or the way of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul, I think, really understood that, you know, that mm-hmm. there is beauty that comes into the earth through male and female mutuality, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So as somebody then who often probably gets asked uh, to help decipher some of the teachings um, in Paul's writings in regards to women, some of the things we write or read into the letters of Corinthians of, of women remaining silent and the instructions on head coverings. I mean, uh, most of this is explained with an understanding of the first century cultures that he was, is living in. But um, do you, do you often end up having to help reconcile Paul's teachings uh, to women in your teaching, because it's so easy. I mean, it's so transparently clear what Jesus thought of women, but really the new Testament begins to be accused of chauvinism through Paul's teachings. And ultimately I think it's through a lack of understanding of the teachings, but how do you help women through those, that questioning process when it comes to Paul? You know, I, I hope to get asked that question more and more. Um, I, I tend to live in a world where that isn't that much of a question, but when sure. it comes, Good. I think that, uh, yeah. Um, you know, when we look at like the New Testament and the writings of Paul, what's interesting to me is, you know, you take a, a prohibition on what women to remain silent in the churches, mm-hmm. but we have to juxtapose that when he says, when women prophesy and pray. Yeah. Right. So, you know, <laughs> or he hands one of his letters to a yes, woman to be delivered. right. I mean, Phoebe, of all the men that he could have sent the letter to the mm-hmm. Romans, he sends Phoebe. And yeah. we know from everything in the historical, cultural, first century world that the one who brings the letter stands in the assembly and authoritatively mm-hmm. reads it and teaches it mm-hmm. to the community. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you get around that in that in that world. Sure, um, by ignoring it, I think. Yes. And so when I, I mean, honestly, from a hermeneutic standpoint, I just really try to talk with people about the danger of having a one verse theology, because to go back to the women prophesying thing in the early church and really throughout antiquity, prophecy has been a hallmark of the presence of the divine. You even look at the Greeks and the Romans and the oracles, like the oracle at Delphi, the mm-hmm. oracle at Didyma, um, many were female. So this idea of the divine speaking to the feminine, this is nothing shocking in the first century world, not to a Greek, not to a Roman and not to a Jew. Look at all the prophetesses in the Bible, Miriam, Deborah, Hulda, Anna, you know, on and on and on. And so what I think is a, a little bit interesting is in the first century world, prophecy is one of the highest 
calibered gifts of the early church, those manifestations. And so we're trying to figure out if Paul was okay with women teaching (laughs) when he expressly says that women were prophesying in church, (laughs) you know, which in that world would have been so much more than even teaching. (laughs) So I really do think it's just, um, and I say this humbly, it's just my position and where I'm at. I think that the way we land at a women are not allowed to teach or to speak in church, it's, it's extrapolating verses out of the overarching story and narrative of the Bible. And even of Paul, because mm-hmm. yeah. some of those moments where he says something, we're ignoring the statements he makes right before mm-hmm. it and right after it. Mm-hmm. So how are we doing that? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it really does make for good conversation. And I understand mm-hmm. um, the curiosity to know it, but you know, again, I guess it's just the lens through which you read it. When I read Paul, I think he was a lover of women. I think he mm-hmm. loved partnering with women. I think he was a champion of women. Um, so I yeah. like Paul. I can't wait yeah. to hang out with him in heaven. Yeah. Well, in, in the meantime, I do hope that you you write that study because that, that would be a phenomenally interesting one. But, um, it, you know, as you, you said this earlier, and I've, I've, I read it in Jesus and women and, and I wrote it down because it was, it was tremendous. Like you said, we often think of Jesus turning things upside down, but as you said, Jesus didn't come to turn things upside down. He came to turn things right side up. And it's my opinion, even more so after talking to you today is things can't be right side up unless everybody feels as if the gospel is for them and that the Bible is for them and God's plan is for them. And so right now, um, in the United States and in the church and even the evangelical church, we have tension when it comes to race relations. We have tension, of course, in light of things like the Me Too movement over the last few years where women are really speaking up for the first time about what their place in society is. And so I can't help resist the urge to, to ask you in light of this idea of Jesus turning things right side up, um, what what do you think he would say to the church of the united states in in 2020 right now in, in specifically in regards to um how women what what is their place in the church what is their place um in reaching this lost and, and broken world and how can pastors like me men who it's very easy for us to uh make our work uh you know male centric Um, What encouragement would you give to guys like me in trying to minister to women in our communities? You know, when I think about the ministry of Jesus, there's a deep renewal and restoration um, that's just in his being. And I think that we as a kingdom of God people are being invited into it. So I think the invitation both for women, wherever we are located in our lives and our families and our communities and our churches and our vocations and all those spaces is to really take God and his word all the way back to the Garden of Eden and to live side by side and face to face meaningfully and wholeheartedly with the men in our lives and understanding that it is in that male-female togetherness that we do contend against the enemy, but that we also invite the kingdom of God to come down to the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the way of empire, if I could use like empire versus kingdom language, Mm -hmm. after the fall, everything is given to empire. It's who's on top. Now we have war. Now we have bloodshed. Mm -hmm. Now we have a stealing and raping of resources and things like that. So in a world of empire, which we might say is anchored in verticality, somebody is trying to be over somebody. 
And the, the world of verticality, it messes everybody up because no matter where you are on the ladder, right, you are jealous of those above you and you are apathetic toward those below you. And so now we see that the way of empire begins to breed social injustice. It begins to breed gender disparities and everything that you're sort of mentioning that mm -hmm. the world is made up of yeah. that Jesus is restoring and renewing. And so when we look at the prophetic witness throughout the Bible, it's that I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters mm -hmm. in the church age. And so yeah. I think that there's this beautiful invitation mm -hmm. for us to, you know, one of the things that I love, and this is just a little bit about my own story. And I always think about it when I'm having this conversation is in all honesty, I have been treated very well by the men in my life, starting with my father, father, you know, uncles, I'm an only child. I don't have brothers, you know, pastors, like men in my life. I, I'm, you know, there's nothing in me that's afraid of men. Men are fun. I play golf with them. We talk theology, like men are awesome. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't have that thing in me um, that I realize some women have who've had different stories yeah. there. And so I, I do think that it's been a gift to me because mutuality is very easy for me to understand because mm -hmm. in some way I've lived it my whole life. Yeah. Um, and so it's really this side by side and shoulder to shoulder invitation to get into the messiness of the world and to mm -hmm. understand that our male female presence within it together, mm -hmm. unified in Jesus, that he will continue that ministry of turning things right side up through us. Yeah. And yeah. just as Mary sat at the feet, maybe right next to Peter, I get to sit at his feet right next to you. Mm -hmm. And you're getting to sit at the feet right next to Courtney. Yeah. And man, it's the flourishing and it's the abundance and it's the wholeness and it's the harmony of the kingdom, the path yeah. of the living God coming down to the ground through mm -hmm. us together. Wow. Well, that Christy, that's, um, phenomenal. And if there's, uh, someone listening, if you're a pastor, if you're a, a husband, a father, um, and you, and you've made it this far in an episode that certainly might feel as if it's not geared towards you. I, I, I know for me that it's just as geared towards me reading Jesus and women. I learned so much in, in reading. Um, and I would just say to, to any man that's listening, if we can learn anything in this moment, apart from just the the wealth of knowledge that Christy and, and, and loads and loads of women uh, who are teaching the Bible faithfully, uh, just like her, that, that there's a lot to learn, but is if ultimately, if we want to be like Jesus, um, empowering women to learn that they are just as much a part of the story as, as we are and as our sons are, um, gets us a large step closer to becoming like Jesus. And so, uh, Christy, I'm so phenomenally thank you, thankful that you've given time. I think people are going to be extremely blessed by listening to you. And, and if you're listening and you are interested in learning more about Christy, please check out her website, go to Lifeway and check out the Jesus and Women Bible Study. And you can follow her on social media, which is all in the show notes. Christy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me to the table. It's been fun. Oh, absolutely. Thank you.